We'll be in Isaiah 54, 9, and 10. Now, we've been in a series for right at about a little over a year in Isaiah, and you might be open to Isaiah 54 and say, wait, what happened to Isaiah 53? I was looking forward to that. We already preached through that in detail connected to Easter, so it lives online, and you can find our sermons on Isaiah 53 online, and they make a great, they pair nicely with exercise, a long commute, a need to fall asleep, uh, all right there. So I'm going to read to you Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10, and we're looking this morning at really how God, His character, and who He is helps us navigate uh, through life. So Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would we catch a sense of that wonderful love and compassion that you have on your people. May we be steadied by the ballast of your promises today. Lead us and guide us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. How do you react and respond when sudden disruptive things happen to you? Sudden disruptive things happen and upset your schedule, upset your calendar. And maybe it's not just for the day, maybe it's for weeks. One time uh, our schedule was disrupted. Suddenly I was just about to take my Sunday afternoon nap. This is years ago. That's sacred time. <laughs> and I'm in, I'm in a rocking chair, got my feet up on the fireplace, and I'm just, you know, sleep's kind of coming for me. Some of you are, might be fighting it now. It's just sort of starting to nod off. Going to get that refreshing Sunday afternoon nap, and the doorbell rings. And I think some unholy thoughts at that moment. And I go to answer the door. And it is my youngest son crying and his arm does not look like an arm. It looks like a noodle. And of course, he had fallen out of a tree, broken his arm. And so that set us on a course and disrupted our schedule. Couple surgeries, all this casting, lots of doctor visits. You know that story if you're a parent. Things happen. Health changes bring about to us these sudden disruptive situations in our schedule. And these are, of course, he's fine now. He, he, he healed up great. But we have these routines, these rhythms, these plans. God, I have plans. And they get upset, don't they? 
from time to time. Now, this is, of course, the result of living in a fallen world. Plans don't go according to the way that we want. And, of course, we know God sanctifies us sometimes by suddenly disrupting all that we planned as a wonderful reminder that we're not sovereign, but He is. And the sudden disruptive changes really tell you they're an indicator of kind of the state of your soul. And no doubt, sudden disruptive changes cause us to trust God in new and different ways, and we're going to talk about how we can do that. But at the same time, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, not sudden disruptive changes, and those can be something like a broken arm. They can also be devastatingly serious in terms of a health change or even the death of a loved one can bring about these sudden disruptive changes, and we need God's help to know how to navigate through these. We also need God's help to know how to navigate through just the ordinary every day. So you have life really exists on this spectrum. You have the sudden disruptive changes, and you have the sort of boring every day. And we've got to know, how do we navigate through this? How is your faith a resource for you to navigate through sudden disruptive changes or the boring everyday life? How does our faith help us? But I'll do one more. It's not just how our faith helps us, but the Presbyterian faith. And why I bring that up, other than the fact we're a Presbyterian church, I bring that up because we are known for this theological principle that God is sovereign, that He is sovereign, and that means He's in charge, and, and what, how does that play out in our lives? Well, God doesn't ask permission uh, first from us before He does something. He is the Lord, and we can trust, we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So we can trust Him that His sovereignty is for our ultimate, not necessarily today, but our ultimate good. But really the question before us is, how does this abstract theological principle that I hope you buy into, that God is sovereign, I don't want to live in a world where God isn't in charge. And I don't think you do either. I don't want to live in a world where somebody tells me, oh, that bad, you know, God must have been asleep when my son broke his arm. I, I don't want to have a God like that. And that's certainly not the God of the Bible. And Isaiah invites us, as I've told you, to have this theology that is accurate to the Scripture. And that theology is to that God is sovereign. But again... God's sovereignty can be this abstract principle. How does God's sovereignty, how do we see it, apprehend it, experience this idea that God is in charge and His providence rules and reigns over all aspects of our life? Life has, as you know, and I've seen some of you handle these sudden disruptive changes in your life a lot better than I would. And thank you for your example to me. But life has these twists, these turns. We've got valleys. We've got mountaintop experiences. How is the Presbyterian faith a resource? How is this idea that God is sovereign? How does it play into, you know, tomorrow, Monday is coming. How does it play into Monday? 
what practical difference does it make? Well, really, God's sovereignty is experienced. This abstract principle, theology, is experienced in two ways that we see in this passage. The first is through God's promises and then through God's eternal love. So, God's promises, God's eternal love is how we experience His sovereignty and His providence. So, we see this come across, verses 9 and 10, Isaiah 54. And in verse 9, you see God's enduring promise. Verse 9 begins this way, this is like the days of Noah to me. And we know from the context of the rest of the chapter there in Isaiah 54, this is God speaking this is like the days of Noah to me. And you might remember the cultural moment there with God's people. Remember, it's a divided kingdom. You've got the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And God is remarking that his judgment that is coming, that would mean the end of the northern kingdom through the nation of Assyria, this judgment of God coming through. And then the southern kingdom the Persians, the Babylonians would come for the southern kingdom, that it is like the days of Noah because God brought his judgment in the days of Noah. The flood of God's judgment, rightfully due to sinners, came in the days of Noah. Now what we have is an analogous situation. God's flood of judgment is coming for Israel, only it's not a water flood, it's a flood of soldiers who would come and eventually take the northern kingdom into exile. The Assyrians would do that, and then the Babylonians would do that for the southern kingdom, destroying Jerusalem and the temple eventually. So the flood comes in the form of these other nations that God brings in judgment against his people. Now, is God right to do that? Absolutely. You've been possibly with us long enough in Isaiah to learn about the sin of Israel, their unrepentance, their stubbornness to, to, to respond to the mercy of God. So God is justified to bring his judgment just as he was in the days of Noah. And we read in verse 9, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. So there's a glimmer of hope, no doubt, that though God's judgment is coming rightfully, justly, I don't want to live in a world that doesn't have a sovereign God. I don't want to live in a world, and neither do you, that doesn't have a just God. He is bringing his justice. And we're told here that we still have a reason for hope because a day is coming where he will not be angry with you, will not rebuke you. A day is coming of uh, God preserving his people just as he preserved Noah and his family. The judgment won't overwhelm God's people. And that is his enduring promise to us. Now, how does this work out? Because really, Isaiah 54, 9 has three different pictures of God not being angry and not rebuking. And the first is a snapshot, as it were, a near fulfillment of this prophecy is when 
God's people return and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So there is a time coming that is prophesied here, and a snapshot of that is seen, a partial fulfillment of that prophecy is seen in uh, the southern kingdom returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city and the temple, a time of God not being angry with you, not rebuking you, a time where they could return to the promised land. But a fuller picture, that's a snapshot, but a fuller picture happens, of course, in God sending the Son. And the Son comes and pays the penalty that is due to God for sin. And we're told about this coming. So in other words, a time is coming where God will not be angry, will not rebuke you. How does this happen? Except through the Son. And we're told of that if you look across the page there, Isaiah 53, 5. We read this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the atonement of Christ made for us. It's a substitutionary atonement. The punishment due to God for our sin fell on Christ. The way that God's wrath, his just anger, is averted is through the sacrifice of the Son. And we call this in theology propitiation. Christ paying, satisfying the wrath of the Father. And this is talked about because we have to understand that God is just, that he cannot simply forgive without any basis. A sacrifice must be made because God is just. And this is the propitiation, the payment Christ paid at the cross to satisfy God's just wrath. So at the cross, you have the intersection, the meeting together of God's justice and God's mercy. In Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 25, speaks of this. And we read about Christ, Romans 3, 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And I know propitiation, big word. It's preserved here in the English Standard Version of the Bible so that we would understand that God is both just and he is merciful. And then uh, another apostle, John, makes mention of this propitiation in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. We read this. He is, talking about Christ here, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when we go back to Isaiah 54... And we read of a time, a future time, where God will not be angry with you, will not rebuke you. We see a snapshot, a near fulfillment in God's people returning to the land. We see the full fulfillment in Christ at the cross paying the penalty that we owed. But there is still another realization, the final, final realization at the end of the ages, Revelation 20, the great right throne judgment, where God's people will be preserved and saved from the judgment because Christ has paid it 
all. And so the good news is, if you're one of his people, then you should know God is not angry with you. He will not rebuke you. That your relationship with the Father, who is holy, even though we're still sinners, has been reconciled through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel right there in Isaiah. Isaiah 54, 9. And it is, there has been given... Of course, the covenant sign, and you heard earlier in our worship service, Genesis 9 read, the bow in the clouds is a symbol. It is a sign of this covenant promise that God has made. And we use that word covenant because what we're talking about here is a whatever-it-takes kind of promise that God has made to his people not to destroy the world with water again. And so the rainbow is a sign of this. Oh, how I wish we would see more rainbows these days. But that bow in the sky, of course, if it's modeled after an archer's bow, a hunter's bow, it is facing towards heaven because it is Christ who paid the penalty. He suffered for our sake. The bow is not facing the earth but instead facing heaven. And of course, I think Trinity is a great name for a church. And I I can say that because I don't have anything to do with it. Our core group that planted this church named us Trinity. And it's good for two reasons. One, it's innocuous enough to get people in the door. And two... It really tells you who God is, who God most fully is. He is Trinity, and we worship and follow Him for who He is, not who we invent Him to be. And so He is Trinity, so that is a great name, in my humble opinion, for a church. Well, would you visit a church named Rainbow Presbyterian Church? Would you go to Rainbow Presbyterian Church? church. And you know, probably if you know anything about American Presbyterianism, Presbyterians have been out to lunch since at least 1973. That's when our denomination started, the Presbyterian Church in America. If you think it's bad now in the larger Presbyterian movement, it was bad back in 1973 and even before then, leading up to this split where our denomination, a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, began. So I go back to that question. Would you go to Rainbow Presbyterian Church? I hope you would, because it's a PCA church. I think you would really like it. Rainbow Presbyterian Church is a church like ours that treasures the truth of the Bible and extols and exclaims the wonder of who God is and how he sent Christ for us. Rainbow Presbyterian Church is located in Rainbow City, Alabama. So now you know where that name comes from. And I think you would enjoy it. You know, it's if you're ever going through Alabama on U.S. Highway 411, which is called Rainbow Drive, you go through Rainbow City, Alabama, and Rainbow Presbyterian is located 
uh, nearby. And I'm sure in today's day and time, they maybe have debated, uh, well, do we change the name of the church? And, and why would we debate that? Because, you know, the rainbow has been co-opted to celebrate that which God clearly forbids in his word. The rainbow has been co-opted. It's been filled with a new meaning. Well, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? And because there's even a month, I was in a local bakery during a month, we're told to celebrate what God forbids, and they had laid out the macaroons in a rainbow color. How do we respond to this? Well, I want to encourage you with this. couple applications when you see rainbows out and about. I want to encourage you with this. Is really to pray. Where you see the rainbow misused to represent something other than God's covenant sign and the peace we have with God, the reconciliation we have with God through Christ, the judgment that has skipped over us, passed over us, I want you to pray. Pray that God would take back his sign, his bow. Instead of being irritated and angry, pray that God would take back that sign. Second thing by way of application is when you see a rainbow, teach your kids the true, the true, the real meaning of the rainbow. Teach your grandkids the real meaning of the rainbow, that God keeps his promises, that the judgment due to us for sin has passed over us, that God will keep his word and his promises. Teach that future generation that reality. Uh, third way to apply that. So we're talking about pray, teach, and then I think have a wonderful sense of confidence every time you see a rainbow. Every time you see a rainbow, you should have a tremendous sense of confidence. Yeah, there it is. God keeps his promises. What more confidence do we need than a God who always keeps his word to us? And a fourth way to apply this. So we're talking about pray, teach, the confidence we should have. When you're out, because I'm sure the next time we see a rainbow, everybody's going to be out taking pictures of it. When you're sort of in a crowd and you see a rainbow, I encourage you to just go ahead and name it. Be brave. Be bold. Yep, God keeps his promises. Maybe just saying that as people are taking pictures of the rainbow or exclaiming about it. Yep, that's his sign that he keeps his word, that he keeps his promise. And so that's some ways we can hopefully, really as Christians, encourage the recapturing uh, rather than the co-opting of the sign of the rainbow. So God's enduring promise. That's God's enduring promise. How do we experience God's sovereignty except through his promises and through his eternal love? This is in verse 10. Verse 10, for the mountains may depart, the hills be removed. So this is cosmological, cataclysmic stuff happening natural disasters, as they're so-called. This is huge. We're talking about mountains going away, hills departing. This is really the end of the ages or something happening that is at that level. And in the midst of that, so this is not just 
my schedule being interrupted. This is big. What's our response? Look at this. Mountains departing. Hills being removed. Look at verse 10. Look at the contrast here in verse 10. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Even when everything's falling apart, even when we feel like things are just coming at us and our life is crazy. If you feel like the mountains are departing, the hills being removed, what can we be assured that isn't going to move, that isn't going to depart from us? His steadfast love. God's steadfast love to assure us and help us get through those times where maybe the mountain-moving times in your life that you can look back and you can think to yourself, God was faithful to me then. He's not going to let me down now just as He promised that He would not destroy the world by water again so He will keep His promise to me today. This is how we experience God as a sovereign, in-control God. His steadfast love is not going to depart. Is that not good news? For sinners like us, living in times like this, where maybe we perceive that the mountains are departing, the hills being removed, we can be assured that His love will not depart from us. And then look at this, my covenant of peace shall not be removed. The lasting covenant promise of God, which has reconciled sinners and a holy God together, will not be moved. And so we have, as it were, a rainbow peace, a peace that is promised through God's enduring and eternal love. And then look at this. There's a little bit extra at the end of verse 10. I mean, it would be enough to know this steadfast love won't depart. The covenant of peace shall not be removed. That would be enough for us, but there's a little bit extra, like you're watching a movie and, and you're sort of waiting. Where's the little extra here at the end? Says the Lord. So again, uh, evidence and a sign of his sovereign rule. He is the Lord. And then look at this. Who has compassion on you? Who has compassion on you? This Sovereign God of the universe who can move the mountains, who can cause the hills to depart. He has compassion on us. And He is the Lord. He is not so far removed. He anchors us. There's a heavy ballast that is given to us in the stormy times in our life. That his covenant of peace shall not be moved. His steadfast love shall not depart. And he has compassion on us. Oh, that's good news. Years ago, we, Tracy and I took a real sailboat trip. It was like a 50-foot sailboat. And one of the features of this sailboat, and if you've ever done some real sailing like that, one of the features of it, when the, when the sail goes out, what do you do? You better have lowered the keel. You know what a keel is? I'll give you a little sailing lesson. The keel is the board that's in the center of the ship that goes down deep into the water, and you have to 
pull it up. You have to raise the keel when you get in shallow water. But when you unfurl the sail, you lower the keel so you can chart a course. Because otherwise, the boat would just scoot along the surface of the water. The rudder is not big enough to counteract the force of the wind. But what the keel does as it goes down, it provides resistance so that the sails can be full in the course charted. Likewise, in our life, I hope I've demonstrated and shown to you that as Christians, we have a keel to lower, that God has given us the resources of his enduring promise and his eternal love, that he is sovereign, but this is not a far-off abstract reality. It is something we apprehend, something we experience, something we know and, yes, even feel as we go through the storms of life and the waves are up and the wind is blowing, we lower the keel and it steadies us. Not because we're calm people who have it all together and my boundaries are really good and my routines and my calendar are all in order. No, it's God's enduring promise and his eternal love. Help us to chart the course. So it's God's love and his promises which function this way in our life. Spiritual growth is really measured not in a growth in intellectual knowledge only, but a growth in a fuller apprehension, a fuller grasp, a fuller comprehension of the wonder of his promises and his great love for us. And that's what pushes us forward in our faith. You're about to hear some some promises extended and answered by new officers as we ordain and install. And it's a picture, really an earthly picture, of a heavenly reality that God keeps his word, that he loves us, that he has compassion on us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that indeed you invite us to have the peace which surpasses all understanding. It's a peace which really comes from the reality of who you are. We thank you that you keep your word and your promises to your people. And we thank you that you love us with an eternal and unchangeable, generous and great, merciful love. Remind us of that. When we have those sudden disruptive changes in our life, would you help us to have the rainbow peace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.